The cabin is cold today. It's November time and it's cold, so my days are indoors. It makes you start to get thoughtful being all inside like that. That's not good. So you have to start doing mindless stuff. Like big jigsaw puzzles of an anthropomorphic starfish sitting on a silvery sand beach under an umbrella, sipping a tropical drink. I started assembling his sunglasses first. That way I knew the starfish would only get exponentially cooler as I solved the puzzle. I like to know that things are just going to keep getting cooler. It's comforting. Speaking of things getting cooler, let's get back to the story I was telling you. Chapter 4, Pizza Rules She said she'd think a lot about the hand that wrote the letters. She'd read a new delivery for an entire afternoon. Over and over again. Then, until dinner at six, she'd drink a wine cooler while she traced the sloppy blue pen ink lines of the letters with her eyes. It was always blue ink. Last Tuesday, she walked out of the detective shop with a magnifying glass. Yes, Boethius has a shop. It's tiny and dimly lit, appropriately, I guess, entirely dedicated to supplies for detectives. Secretive Joe's. Joe retired a decade ago. But those who know say he's still as secretive as ever. His son, Ron, runs the shop now. Customers still don't know what to think of Ron, so they feel the store was left in good hands. There's only one known professional private eye in this town, which is home to just under 11,000 people. The shop opened 34 years ago. I think you just have to assume the place is teeming with some private, private investigators. Her new lens was a handheld, wood handle with a brass circle around the glass. I saw the box on her desk. It said four times Sherview, spelled S-H-E-R of course, for the famous fictional detective, Cheryl Avery Jinks. The box said it was great for nearly any mystery, including but not limited to solving cold case murders and reading pesky small print on your medication bottles. She wanted to know the person writing the notes. Were they dictating her son's thoughts? Or was the writer just making the whole thing up? Either way, it felt real. Real enough to imagine what she needed, I guess. She'd drink tea every morning. She didn't like tea, but the letters always started with her son, saying he just brewed a pot. 
They never said if it was black or green. They wrote about adding three sugar cubes. Details like this made it all much easier for Mrs. Grenick. Mr. Grenick never read the letters. He refused. His wife would try to read a choice sentence aloud, but he wouldn't respond. But he would get loud with the newspaper and jerk it around like he was just trying to correct drooping pages. He'd get drunk, too. Moonshine from a friend. He'd get to thinking. That's what people called it, thinking. I guess it was a bad thing to do in this situation. He'd yell at anyone around. She reads those letters like they're a gift. But I know the hand that writes those letters took the life of my son. He tried to strangle a guy at the breakfast place. I was told it happened in March. Mrs. Granick had a handwriting expert over to the house, and he felt like he couldn't escape their conversation. He even went out to the garage and turned up the radio. He felt like he could still hear them talking about the strange hand that he feels took away their son. I asked him what song was playing. An old one, he said. The one with the chorus that goes, Oh, I wish, 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 or something. It's girls. I had no idea, but I pretended that it was one of my favorites. That's one of the all-time great songs, I said. It didn't sound very good, though. On his way to the strangling, he said he couldn't stop thinking about picking up a pack of cigarettes. I used to smoke those unfiltered ones, with the drawing of the crown of stars on the box. He was talking about a cigarette brand called Northern Crowns. They're not around anymore. They were the only cigarette that contained both cool menthol and spicy pepper. Drandy once showed me an ad from a magazine from the mid-1960s. It was a weathered astronaut cowboy throwing his galactic lasso into the stars as he enjoyed the mixed signal flavor of his Northern Crown 100. Mr. Grenick stopped by the smoke shop and looked around to try to calm himself down. He walked into the cigar closet and immediately felt claustrophobic. He felt his chest get tight and his hands started to sweat. There's no point in getting some fancy cigar if my hands are going to leak all over it, he recalled thinking. He also said this to the cashier, who made a face. The face, probably a stiff, creeped-out smile below terrified eyes, pushed Mr. Grenick over the edge. He says he felt like everyone thought he was crazy. His wife, she was pen pals with someone who could be standing next to a cage containing their only son. He'd repeat. He said that he would be kept awake at night by visions of his son in a cage. They sent him away and Mr. Grenick felt bad about that. He was always acting up. He huffed paint, but it was acrylic from Mrs. Grenick's craft bin. 
It didn't alter Woody's state of consciousness or damage any brain tissue. Woodward Idris Grenick is their son's full name. Friends called him Woody, enemies called him Woodnick, but he only had one enemy, who did in fact regularly huff premium brand house paint. He said premium gave way to a more spiritual high. Marcus was Woody's best friend, right until he talked him into the huff. His full name is Marcus Plum, and he lived at the extended stay motel people just called the Notel. We had a double twin suite on the ground floor at the Notel. The motel sign was obscured by overgrown tree branches, but if you stood directly underneath, it read the Pious Fox Inn. The day before Woody Grenick was shipped to the Bad Kid Camp, as Mr. Grenick called it, he stapled flyers all over town, exposing his ex-best friend's paint habit. Marcus Plum, he dips his chin and sucks right in. Marcus huffs paint. He added the last line just in case his little poem, which he was proud of, confused anyone. The flyer was thick black marker on a photocopied stationery from the desk of Alan Grenick. Alan, aka Mr. Grenick, was a tax preparer. I have no idea what that means. We talked in his home office and it was full of papers. That's all I know. It was messy, but he says it hadn't always been that way. Things weren't going so well for the Grenick family. We have to talk about someone else. I'm tired of the Grenicks. They were strange people. Like after dinner, Mr. Grenick would bring out this big hardcover book called Liberty on Big Casey's Riverboat. It was this really dumb story about this guy who steals a woman named Liberty and makes her live on his boat. At first, she's really angry because he kidnapped and imprisoned her. Then she realizes that, I guess, she's happy that he stole her. Mr. Grenick says he always reads it to guests because it changed his life. He explained that it changed the way he thought about the government or something. He said a lot of words, but I stopped listening because I had already started to really hate him. He said stuff like constitution and citizenry and absolute freedom is an invisible jail cell. The last part stuck with me because I have no idea what it means. Also, the first two things, I only have a vague understanding of those, if I'm being honest. They are awful. That's what I figured out. I'll tell you and you'll be like, yeah, you're right. Oh, and before we left, I stole Mr. Grenick's weird favorite book, and I still have it. Drendy and I knew we had to go talk to Woody's friend Marcus. 
He's living in a motel, and that usually means something. Even when a really rich person lives in a fancy hotel, it isn't a good sign. Can you imagine not being able to take down the bad paintings they have in hotel rooms? It's always a horse, and the horse always seems like it's thinking about what it wants to do after it's done posing for the painting. You can just tell it doesn't want to be there, is what I'm saying. But like I was saying, we went back to our motel room and hung out. I think our room was basically right next to Marcus. So it was one of those really sad conveniences. I'd rather have to take a little walk if it means my trajectory didn't lead me to being at the same motel as a paint huffer slash bad friend. We did knock a little on Marcus's door. He didn't answer, so we went back to our room and watched a little TV. We looked through the phone book for a good pizza place. Boy, there are a lot of pizza places in this town. Maybe too many, actually. I never thought I'd think that, but everything about the last few days had already shattered my reality. We felt a little overwhelmed, so Drandy suggested we ask for a pizza tip from the front desk guy. He had some, and he brought us back to his office for our lesson. The cheap wood panels were covered in flickering light from a single shitty looking lamp, and what seemed to be a collection of Vermont state maps. They were all in different styles. My favorite was a promotional item from a regional eatery chain. The title of the map was A Yummy Graphic Map of Vermont. That was written in liquidy looking lettering like it was supposed to be strawberry milkshake. Vermont itself was rendered in neon green and marked with burgers to indicate restaurant locations. The Green Mountains were stylized as french fries with ketchup snow caps. That was a nice touch. The chain was Kenneth's Burger Store, the place we dropped the unarmed man off earlier, I guess. I have some rules, pizza rules, if you will. The hotel guy said as he raised a single finger. I try to never order from any pizza place that has a smiling kid as the logo. Never trust that kid. And also, generally I've had bad experiences with any parlor that thinks I care if they're Italian. I went to school with a guy who had the surname Pizza and they are about as Italian as a bunch of drunk guys in overalls marching towards a giant bucket of sausages with drool pouring out of their mouths. I guess this guy didn't care for Italians or Germans, but that didn't matter. We just needed input from a pizza lover, which he clearly was. Drandy was studiously taking notes in a pocket-sized notebook I'd never seen before. He was nodding his head and making deep, 
meaningful eye contact, as though he were standing in front of a wise oracle. Besides the pizza, speaking to Marcus was probably the most important thing we had to do. The hotel guy said Marcus was never around on Tuesdays or Thursdays, and he said he didn't know or care why, which was kind of rude. So we decided we'd have to occupy ourselves until tomorrow night. That's when we decided to order three pizzas, sharing that third pizza would fill at least another 10 minutes or so, and maybe more if it wasn't that good, and we critiqued it as we ate. The pizza guy showed up in 40 minutes, but the pizza wasn't free because another one of the hotel guy's pizza rules was that you never order from a place with a 30 minutes or it's free policy. Great pizza, like the ceiling paintings in an old haunted church, takes time, the hotel guy told us. I saw the bouncing sign on the top of his car as he parked at a slant. The guy's loose-fitting, light denim pizza delivery uniform was dirty and tattered, and it was covered in dry paint, lots of it. He was gaunt and seemed to be negotiating with semi-atrophied legs up the steps. Maybe we caught Marcus at work, I said to Drendi. He scrunched his shoulders and said, yeah. Then he slid off his headphones and said, what? Why did you say yeah if you couldn't hear me, I said. I forget that I couldn't hear you and thought it might be important, he said. What did you imagine, I said, in the first place, I asked him. Something about a gold rush or something, I don't really know, he said. I said that our pizza guy might be Marcus himself, I said. Marcus himself, Drendy said. Well, it's possible. House paint isn't free. The knock at the door was weak. It sounded like his knuckles were sliding down the door. Hey, I said, what do I owe you? That's three pizzas, a pep, a meatball green onion, and one King's special. That'll be 1825, the guy who might be Marcus said. Awesome, I said. Are you an artist? You're covered in paint. That's why I ask, I said. We've got some great horse paintings in here. Maybe you'd like to study the brushwork or whatever. He winced and leaned his head back. I'm a, he barely said it. Yeah, sure. I paint houses and am also an artist, he said. That's great, I said. Do you find that one practice informs the other? I have no idea, man. It's 1825. We're looking for someone, I said. Drendy did this thing where he tactfully lacked tack. He's a real piece of shit, Drendy said. I think his name is Marcus. Marcus Prune or something, he said. Drendy squinted and placed his index fingers on his lip in mock contemplation. No, not Prune, but it's a really, really bad name just like that. It's perfect for this scumbag, though. Alright, can I just have my money, not Marcus Prune, said. 
I think what my friend is trying to ask is if you know a guy named Marcus Plum. I said, Why are you trying to mess with me? I have pizza to deliver, dude. The guy was probably Marcus Plum, said. It was Marcus Plum himself. What are the odds? All those pizza places in Boethius, and by the grace of the motel guy's pizzeria prejudice, our man is delivered. It was probably just my imagination, but now the horses on our walls suddenly looked happy to be there. That's all for this week. Wow, look at this story. These characters are saying stuff that you can hear. Now that might not sound like an accomplishment. You might be scratching your wig, an expensive hat, or maybe you wear one of those neon brimmed bingo visors. And you're thinking, hmm, hearing characters is the most basic requirement of telling a story. You'd be right about that, but you're ignoring the fact that when I first use my brainwaves to recall my memories and stuff, they're totally silent. I mean, that's a lot of silence into sound translation. Sometimes when things are hard to describe, they just feel like straight up brain things. And I'm over here, sitting in a chair, rocking back and forth and it's not even a rocking chair, going to myself. Now, this thing seems to defy being rendered by any combination of words. But then I drink a little more diet soda, and I chew on a professionally made sandwich made by a guy named Rondel. He runs Suboptimal Sandwiches. It's a nice little place downtown. They have a big window, you can look at the river and eat. Good chips selection too, but they only do canned sodas, no fountain. So that means no ice and absolutely no out the door refills. I really like a stroll by the river with a straw in my mouth, but a can in the hand isn't anything to cry about either. After my river walk, I feel refreshed. An 8-ounce can of Diet Explode Now Cola has 120 milligrams of caffeine. It keeps me sharp, I like to think. I'm driving home and my brain, surging, seems to simulate a world where everyone and everything is trying to murder me. That really keeps you in your lane literally and whatever isn't literal but anyways i've been local <laughs>